Hi, I'm Justin Hayat, and this is 36. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the far corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. In 2020, somehow, I managed to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. Outside the noise of Tel Aviv, we are welcomed into Alex Riff's home. She's pregnant with her second baby. I had no idea she was pregnant. I'm happy to see her, and she's happy to see us. She ushers her dog into a spare bedroom. He keeps barking, and we start talking. I'm never scared of dogs, but hers does scare me a bit for some reason. Anyway, I've known Alex for years, but her story has always been a bit of a blur to me. I know she was born in Ukraine, and I know she's a poet. A lot happened in between, I assume. I've heard bits and pieces, but never the entire story. Alex is a keen observer, a sharp woman, and when she speaks, she speaks with intention. I listened as she dove into her story of how a shy girl from Ukraine arrived in Israel and began to grapple with her identity, her purpose, and her roots. This is my conversation with Alex Riff. We are here with a friend and activist and poet, Alex Riff. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Awesome. So if you were to describe your journey to where you are today, where were you born and how did this all happen? I was born in the former Soviet Union in the Ukraine, and I immigrated with my family to Israel in 91. I made Aliyah. I was five years old and we came to Netanya. And the first thing I remember is that I went with my mother to my first day to the Israeli kindergarten. I was really excited and I remember entering this really noisy kindergarten. All the children are laughing, playing, running around and all of a sudden everything turns quiet. They all look at me and start laughing. So what happened was that my adorable mother dressed me up in a white lace dress, thick tights, sandals, and a huge red bow on my head. Oi. Yes, that's the right way to speak about it. So I started crying and like begging my mother not to leave me in this horrible place, but she had to go to work. So I remember deciding that day that I don't want to be Russian anymore. And ever since that day, I didn't speak Russian. I didn't want to do anything with my Russian culture. I wanted to be Israeli, and I kind of started my journey to becoming Israeli. It was my first day in kindergarten that started it all, and I remember this first moment that I actually felt Israeli. So this was the day Evgeny arrived in kindergarten. So this poem called Evgeny, it goes like that. The day Evgeny arrived in kindergarten, the sun shone. He was smaller than me, paler than me, and he smelled of fear. This time it was me who explained to him in distinct Hebrew words that socks and sandals are, how to say, ugly. 
that a herring sandwich is, so to speak, smelly, and that he should speak Hebrew. This is not Russia. The day Evgeny arrived in kindergarten, I was happy. So this was kind of my first step, but since then, for about 20 years, I did anything I can in my power to become Israeli, from going to a community service year after graduation, because this is very Israeli, to volunteer, and hanging out only with Tabar friends who were born in Israel, and speaking without an accent in Hebrew, because the compliment I loved getting is, you're Russian? You don't look like a Russian. And I thought this was a compliment. Because you're like a little tan. Yes, and because I thought that, whoa, I I succeeded. I I, I erased this Russian smell, uh, look, or whatever I felt that is wrong. And after I finished my community service here, I went, I enlisted the army and I became an officer because I thought that this is an entrance gate to the Israeliness that I can't, can't skip. Even though I had a very difficult service mentally, today I know that one third of the soldiers that commit suicide during the army are Olim Chadashim because this is a very difficult environment for young children, like grown-ups, that doesn't have support from home or mm-hmm. enough support from Ole home. Chadashim, new immigrants, people yes. coming from places that are not Israel to serve in the army. Usually by themselves, sometimes their parents are abroad. And, and it happens frequently that they kill themselves. Yes, because it's really difficult. So I, my parents were here, but I never shared my things I'm going through with them because they were really into their own survival and working very difficult jobs, like two jobs a day. And I I couldn't like tell them what I'm going through. After I finished with the army, I went to my first and second degree in the most Hebrew university I know. And after I graduated my second degree, I started working in the public service. I actually, in a lot of ways, fulfilled my Israeli dream. I had an Israeli job, an influential and interesting one. What was it? I was the right hand of the uh, Deputy Director General of uh, Employment in Israel. I worked with her and it was interesting and amazing, but I was about 27 and my grandmother died. She was with us. She was kind of raising me when I was a little girl because as a lot of Russian families, I had a grandmother in the living room. It it was kind of a joke that every Russian has a grandmother in her living room, uh, watches TV, because a lot of us came with grandmothers or grandfathers and they couldn't afford to uh, rent themselves their own apartment. So a lot of us lived together. So I remember growing up with my grandmother. And then when I was 27, she died. And she was in many ways my last linkage to my heritage. Okay, She was the only one that actually really insisted in speaking Russian to me and telling me the, the history, the heritage. And of course, that time I didn't want to listen. But it was really, for me, a big shock understanding that, that I lost my last connection. To my roots. And in many ways, this kind of started my wave of connecting again. My way of connecting started with music, even not with my poems, because I started singing and playing her favorite Russian songs as kind of a way to connect to her after she died. Through my music, I felt that 
I had some kind of a, a spiritual and, and emotional connection that I never had with Hebrew music, which was odd because I loved Hebrew music. Like, and all of a sudden I felt that when I sing in Russian, something happens there that is much larger and more true than when I, when I sing in Hebrew which is much more like for me I can I can actually say that Hebrew is my mother tongue as well even though it is not my mother tongue but I speak in Hebrew much better than I speak in Russian so the music started that dealing with my identity and my roots and I started going back and writing poems about my experiences about my immigration I think the first thing that happened was that I actually started to speak with my parents through my poems that time I didn't have the courage yet to really speak to them, so I wrote them. So one of my songs that I like the most is a song called Mother's Diamond Earrings. Do you sing it or do you say it? I never sing them. They don't have a... <laughs> they, they, I don't think they can be sung like they're, they're poems, they're not songs. So this one goes Mother's Diamond Earrings. Can you say it first in English and then in Hebrew? Yes. Mother. At the age of 30, I wore your diamond earrings, and I swelled in pride. They were purchased there in secret for the equivalent of a four-month salary. I made you into a partisan, a freedom fighter, a national hero. You immigrated because you wanted to, and you wanted to, obviously, because you were a Zionist. A light unto the nations, no more diasporic darkness. And I did not recount the cleaning of floors, erasing of dreams, and the anxiety attacks. And toward evening, when I finished to discuss your life for a toast of deception, I wanted to take off the earrings with no success. My lie merged with my body like a successful melting pot, like it never was. Now in Hebrew, הגילה יעלום של אימא. אימא, בגיל שלושים ענדתי את הגילה יעלום שלך והתנפחתי מגאווה. הם נקנו שם בסתר בשווי משכורת ארבע חודשית. עשיתי אותך פרטיזנית, לוחמת חירות, גיבורה לאומית, עלית כי רצית, נלחמת להבריח לארץ הקודש כל פרוטה, ציונית, השראת שארית הפלטה, ולא סיפרתי. על ניקיון הרצפות, מחיקת החלומות והתקפי החרדה. So I just want to make an observation. You're far more into it in Hebrew. I think that I'm, like this is part of my story, the Hebrew, and the, the, the way of telling it, and it's, and it's kind of a, you know, in Hebrew it becomes kind of a spoken word. It's something that can be part of, my, of a story, not just a poem that stands aside. This is what mother tongue is, I mean, that you feel at home in your language. Do you think it gets ever lost in translation when you say it in English? I think in many ways, yes. But I think most of my poems are really simple to understand. They, they're saying what they're saying. It doesn't have a lot of, I don't know, smart ways to, to think about it. So I think the message kind of comes through. But, but this poem, for example, I like... For many years, I was really angry at my parents because my house was really different. It was very Russian. And for many years, I didn't understand why we're not celebrating the holidays or doing Shabbat dinners 
or like traveling the country. And I and it took me some time to understand what it meant to come from a communist state and to live for 40 years of their lives under oppression and under totalitarian state. I didn't know that religion was banned in Russia. So for years, they were disconnected from their culture and their history, and they could not practice Judaism. So they didn't know the holidays when they came to Israel. We had two holidays, which was Israeli Novigod, and and the second holiday was like birthdays, which yes. was super important to us. So I think that the poems kind of made me make peace with them and what they had to come here in 40 and start over and not speaking a word in Hebrew and for many ways giving up their future in order to give us, their children, a chance for a future in the new country. I think the next step once I started looking into my immigration experience was I actually felt that I need my Tabar friends, my Israeli-born friends, to listen to this experience. So I arranged this first, we called it Tusovka, which is in Russian kind of a, a word that means party, hanging out, friends. And, and I found some like poets like me, Generation 1.5, which is an interesting term. I'll, I'll say about it more in a second. And we've made this event in 2015 in Tmol Shilsham Cafe, which is no longer existing in Jerusalem. And we spoke about our, our immigration experience through poetry and spoken word and music. And I think this is the first time I understood that I'm not alone in this experience, that it's kind of a, a generation. It's called Generation 1.5. And this is a sociological term that speaks about the children of the immigrants, the ones that are being brought to the new country with a suitcase. They don't choose to immigrate, but they have eventually two languages, two cultures, two worlds that they grow up in, the world that they came from and the new world. And I always say that these are children that are searching for home their entire lives because they have, they have dual identity and it's sometimes very difficult because they're not sure who they are and to where they belong. So this first event kind of started this amazing movement of another one and another one and another one. And then we kind of started this cultural group of people and artists and, and social activists. And we decided to call ourselves the Cultural Brigade and to make our mission to make the story and culture of Russian-speaking Israelis part of the Israeli culture. Because we saw that it's not only that I was ashamed of this culture, and some of my friends had a similar story to mine, but the Israeli culture was not accepting it. It was something that a lot of people had to be ashamed of. They had to hide their Russian. You know, I remember as a child, I was like asking my mother not to speak to me in Russian. Because Russian is not French. Russian is something to be ashamed of. French is a beautiful language. So that, that's how Israelis a lot of times look at it. And also, I think even today, people make comments about the French Olim coming to Israel, but it's like, oh, they're so rich and they're so beautiful and they're driving up the prices. It's, it's, it's a glamorous kind of like distaste. It's amazing. Every Aliyah has its things that is uh, unique to it, but... We didn't drive any <laughs> anything uh, luxurious. Like our stigmas was that we are uh, 
either alcoholists and hookers or like cleaning ladies and workers in the supermarket. So a lot of stigmas hang to Russian speakers from these early years. But this is a totally different conversation we can speak about <laughs> for hours. So if I'll continue my journey, about that time, I think that we took our first huge project because we felt that like, well, it's amazing to write poetry, but it's not enough. And we decided to actually go to really social activism. So our first project was Israeli Novigod, this amazing holiday that was celebrating at home since the Soviet times. But in Israel, even though it's actually the New Year's Eve, right? Novi is new God. It's a year in Russian. Okay, it's Novi God, New Year's Eve. Which is a big deal in Russian culture. Which is a really big deal and we celebrate it. And they continue celebrating in Israel, but in Israel it's kind of got this new name, Sylvester, which is a Christian saint that died on the 31st of December. And a lot of Israelis thought that if they celebrate this, then there must have been Christians and they're celebrating a Christian holiday. Of course, which is not the case. It was a family holiday. It was a secular holiday. So that's what we did in this project. We did a huge social campaign with video and with a lot of interviews. We encouraged people, Russian-speaking Israelis, to open their house and actually kind of invite Tabal friends that never celebrated the holiday to celebrate with them. Like uh, an Israeli Mimuna. It was amazing because it was the first time that it actually happened. And I think that after one month of this project, we reached more than one million people on Facebook. We did cultural projects, festivals, events, in order to make our culture and story part of the Israeli culture. And I think that in many ways we did bring huge change for the Russian-speaking culture in Israel because it did became from something that a lot of people were ashamed of being Russian to something that in some circles is actually cool. Okay, you're Russian, you have Israeli Novigod, you have a lot of other stuff, you have interesting food Does maybe. the vodka thing bother you? No, it's, a, well, it's another one of the stigmas that we have. It's okay, a lot of Russians maybe like vodka, but a lot <laughs> of them don't, I don't know. So I think that like... We understood that we did bring a lot of change, but what didn't change all these years was my mother, because she turned 69 this year, and she's still working as a cleaning lady, way past her retirement age, because she can't afford herself to retire, because she has no pension. And this is a story of a lot of Russian-speaking immigrants, that because they came here at a very like in 40s, 50s, 60s, they couldn't, they didn't have enough time to have a normal pension that will help them to retire with dignity. So they're working. And this is just a, one like example of a lot of problems that Russian speaking have, even though it's, it's been 30 years since the immigration. And this is when we decided to take the next step and established an NGO. And we called it One Million Lobby. So we can actually lobby and advocate. For example, or two or three examples, like my parents, a lot of Russian speakers live in poverty. Another example is that a lot of Russian speakers can't get married in Israel. About 300,000. Because they don't have the proof of Judaism? Or they're not Jewish by halakha, which means they can't get married to Jews because in Israel you don't have civil marriage. Jews can't get married to non-Jews. Or others, like myself, which is Jewish by halakha, or at least it is written my, to that zeut in my um, passport. But if I'll go to the Rabbanu to get married, 
I will have to go through a Jewishness uh, um, checkup. Which is insulting. Which is insulting and which is happening only to Russian-speaking heroes. But today, it's going more and more to Jews that came from America. They're going through a lot of Beruriyadut, it's called. So uh, they're being checked, their Judaism as well. So we need to, to bring proof after 30 years. And the thing is that after 30 years, a lot of people, their mothers and grandmothers are not alive, so they can't bring them. And a lot of the certifications that we have are not enough because it's not the originals, because we sometimes we ran from our country. So the people just being like kind of taking their Judaism away because they can't prove it. Don't some, I mean, you're from the Ukraine, obviously, but I feel like some countries like Russia, I've heard that your religion is in your passport or the former Soviet Union. Was it the same in Ukraine? Definitely. It was all over the former Soviet Union. It was called 0.5. And every Jew in his passport were, if he was a Jew, it was written 0.5, Jew. And in Russia, you didn't. they didn't check if it's your mother or your father. If you had one side that has a Jewish name, you were a Jew. So I will end our interview with a question I've been asking to everyone. Thinking back on your journey from today to when you first came, maybe even to before, you know, when you were born in Ukraine, what's one line or motto or song verse or for you maybe poem that just kind of keeps you going, allows you to continue to do this, what I think is very important and very unifying work? So I th- I'm, I'm not sure I have a one line, but I give you a couple of lines, <laughs> which is the most important for me. I think one of them is learn from your failures, because I think I had a lot of failures in my way, and every failure kind of taught me how to go forward. And I used it because in every time I failed, I actually asked myself, but what did I really want to do? Why did I, why did I do this anyway? And then I hung out with, the, with my reason. Because it sometimes was bigger than the things that I failed in. When you learn not to fall into your failures, but to grow from them, it's amazing what journey you can make. And the other thing I believe that I think in almost everything, it's 20% talent, 80% hard work in everything. In, in being a good singer, in being a good poet, in being a good manager, I really believe that when you know how to work hard and to learn and to get better and to see people as people, not as ways to get what you need and really work with the best people, with the best friends, with the best co-workers you can find, with people you like, working with them and like them as people, then you'll always get to your 100%. Amazing. Well, you've probably exceeded 100% from my eyes. And thank you so much. You have to go get your child from school. I am, I am. (laughs) No, not school yet. From kindergarten. kindergarten. (laughs) And um, hopefully by the time this airs, you're pregnant now. Um, Hopefully you have a beautiful baby. uh, Thank you. To continue, you know, your legacy and your work and continue to give you new light and perspectives on your work. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Our time is almost over, and Alex Riff needs to pick up her daughter. She can't mention her daughter without stealing a slight smile. I ask her, what's next? Will words be enough for her? 
Her words took her far, but her parents took her farther. And so she fights for them, and immigrants like them, with words, with advocacy, and with a family. A family that, as of a month and a half ago, added its newest member. As Alex writes her next verse, as an immigrant who became an Israeli, a daughter who became a mother, and a shy toddler who became a champion, the lesson is clear. Never doubt the quiet kid. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.